Also joy this morning to continue our study of the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We're moving right along in our study of this beloved epistle. And we come now to Philippians chapter 3, which is a very rich and powerful section from this uh, teaching from God, this uh, beloved epistle. And Paul is going to share with us his heart and the surpassing value of knowing Christ in this text But for our study this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Uh, Let's read this passage together for our time around God's word. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I don't know if this morning if you came expecting to hear a message about dogs, but you're going to hear one. If I were to give a title to this morning's message, it would be a warning against false teachers. A warning against false teachers. In verse 2, Paul uses... The Greek term blepete, beware, or look out, or be on guard against, three times in rapid-fire succession. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, and the repetition of those verbs adds urgency to what Paul is saying. He's saying, beware of false teachers in this world. Down in verse 18, he repeats this warning, saying, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. This chapter is a warning against false teachers. Now, in the discussion of false teachers in this chapter, Paul is going to get very personal. He's going to describe his testimony of coming to Christ. He's going to talk about how he was a Hebrew of Hebrews, how he was as to the law blameless, how he was once a Pharisee and trusted in his works righteousness, and how he traded all of those things in in order to gain Christ. He's going to talk about how he personally feels that, that Christ is more valuable in his life than anything else that this world could offer. He's going to talk about the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of having a relationship with Christ, and how he considers everything else in life as scubalon, as rubbish, as excrement in view of the surpassing value of Jesus. But while the flow of Paul's thought is going to end up getting very personal, the immediate cause of his writing this chapter is to warn the church against false teaching. He wants the church to be vigilant. He wants the church to be on guard. He wants the church to be on the alert because there are those who are out there who would corrupt the gospel of Jesus Christ and teach false doctrine to the church. And so he says, you need to look out for false teachers. 
You'll notice in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul opens this chapter by saying, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He uses that word finally as a word of conclusion. Uh, usually when Paul says finally, he is wrapping up his thoughts. He is concluding his letter. He's bringing the epistle to a close. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice. In 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 11, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us. Usually this is him signing off, giving parting exhortations. But in the book of Philippians, he says, Finally, my brothers. And then he goes on for two more chapters. You say, well, he's just like our pastors, right? We say, in conclusion, and then we think of all these things we want to say. Paul the original intent was to conclude his epistle here and to just end with parting words, thanking the Philippians for Epaphroditus and thanking them for the financial gift that they sent. But in calling them to rejoice in the Lord, he remembers one of the greatest threats to the church's joy, and that is the threat of false teaching. And so he goes into a digression in chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to chapter 4, verse 7, in which he deals with the threat of false teaching in the church, and he calls the church to be on guard against those who would corrupt the gospel of Christ. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. And then he remembers, beware of the dogs, beware of the evildoers, beware of the false circumcision, those who mutilate the flesh. Now this digression was going to extend all the way down to chapter 4, verse 8, at which point Paul is going to say, finally, brothers, and then he's going to finally conclude this epistle. And so what we can say about this section in the book of Philippians is that this is the third major section in the flow of this book. The third major section. If you've been with us, you'll remember the first two major sections. The first section was a section dealing with perspective and trials. That ran from chapter 1, verse 3, all the way to verse 26. Paul was explaining there how he's in prison, and he's facing possible death, and he's incarcerated for his faith in Christ, and yet he's rejoicing. He's being attacked by critics in the church, and yet he's rejoicing because the gospel is going forward. He he doesn't know if he's going to live or die, but he rejoices because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And so that whole first section was dealing with perspective in trials. Paul was calling the church to rejoice because he is rejoicing in the midst of his trials. The second major section we looked at began in chapter 1, verse 27, and extended all the way down to the end of chapter 2. And in that section, Paul was exhorting the church to godly conduct. He said in chapter 1, verse 27, only this, conduct yourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. He was calling the church to unity. He was calling the church to pursue sanctification. He was calling the church to live lives that are blameless and innocent, above reproach, holding fast the word of life in this wicked and twisted generation. And he concluded that section calling the church to godly conduct by presenting to them two examples of the conduct that he is after. And those men were Timothy and Epaphroditus, two servants in the early church who conducted their lives in a manner that was worthy of the gospel. 
And so Paul called the church to look at these men and to examine their lives and to follow them as they followed Christ. So the first main section dealt with perspective and trials. The second main section dealt with godly conduct. And now we come to the third main section in the book of Philippians. It runs from chapter 3, verse 1 to chapter 4, verse 7. And this is a section dealing with false teaching, false doctrine in the world. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And as I said, Paul's going to say some wonderful things in this section. He's going to deal with the surpassing value of knowing Christ. He's going to talk about his own pursuit of Christ in his daily walk. But the immediate cause of him writing this chapter is to warn the church against false doctrine. Now you note in verse 1 he says, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it is safe for you. The idea is that Paul had already warned them when he was with them that they are to be on guard against false teachers. This, these, this is nothing new. I've already told this to you. I've already shared my heart with you. I've already told you how false teaching will corrupt your joy in Christ. It will corrupt the church. It will destroy the church's ministry. And so now I'm just writing down the things that I've already told you in person. To write these things is no trouble to me. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd. I care for the flock. I care for the church. I don't mind repeating these things over and over again. Why? Because it is safe for you. It is a protection to the church if I, as a shepherd, repeat these warnings over and over again to continually bring you to remembrance of the things that you need to hear. And so he says, I'm repeating this warning. I'm saying it again. I'm going to sound like a broken record, but I want you to be on guard against the dogs. Be on guard against the evildoers. Be on guard against those who mutilate the flesh. You need to be on guard against false teaching. You need to be alert that this is out there. You'll remember Paul's exhortation to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verse 29. And he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men inside the church, men will arise speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, be on guard, have your eyes wide open, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul must have given similar exhortation to the Ephesian church, just pouring out his heart to them. Guard the purity of the gospel. Guard the purity of the truth. Hold fast to the word of God. Hold fast to the true teaching of what Christ has done. And now he says, I'm writing it down again. I'm reminding you what I've already told you because I want to protect you. I want you to be safe. And I want you, verse 1, to rejoice in Christ. I'm writing these things for your joy. I'm writing these things because I want you, as a pastor, I I want you to experience the full blessings of all that Christ has for you. In order to experience that, you need to be on guard against false teaching. Matthew 7, verse 15, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You know, one of the reasons why the church needs to be on guard against false teaching is that false teachers do not come to us looking like false teachers. I mean, it'd be pretty easy if they came to us looking like Darth Maul from Star Wars Episode One, 
with horns on their head and a red face that looks like a devil and an evil-looking lightsaber and saying, follow me, I'm of Satan. Jesus said that false teachers do not come to us looking like that. They come to us looking like sheep. They look innocent, harmless. They look like the flock of God, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. They are seeking to devour the flock of God by what they teach. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 13 says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Look, usually when a false teacher comes to the church, he comes to us holding a Bible. The false teacher does not come to the church offering us the book of Satan. He will not come to the church offering us a book of witchcraft or sorcery. He will come holding a Bible. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. Verse 15, Paul says, So it is no surprise if Satan's servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Satan's tactics are always subtle. Back in the Garden of Eden, he didn't come to Eve saying that God has lied to you. He came questioning her subtly. Has God really said? Did he really say that? His tactics are always subtle and deceptive. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. They're not going to do it overtly. It's not going to be obvious for all to see. They're always going to take subtle form because Satan's tactics are always to deceive. And verse 2 says that many will follow their sensuality and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. This is what the book of 1 Timothy is all about. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 Timothy was charged to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul warned Timothy, now the Spirit expressly says, this is clearly taught by the Holy Spirit, that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God has created to receive be received with thanksgiving. Paul told Timothy, you are going to minister in a world that is rampant with false teaching. You're going to minister in a world where the gospel is twisted and distorted and is turned every way into something in which it is not. And what are you to do as a minister in response to this? 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. You, Timothy, must be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. You need to hold fast to the word of God and never depart. Constantly nourish your soul on the true teaching of the word of God. 
And not only are you to do this in your personal devotion, but verse 13, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Verse 15, he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The only way to be on guard against false teaching in the world is to be thoroughly acquainted with the true teaching of the Word of God. And so there must be a personal devotion to be constantly nourished on the Holy Scripture, on the words of the faith and on sound doctrine. And there must be a corporate devotion to the Word of God in which we devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhorting believers in the Holy Word, and to teach sound doctrine in the church. We are to practice these things, immerse ourselves in them, because this is the safeguard against false teaching in this world. Paul is calling for a relentless, persevering commitment to centralize the Scripture in the life of the minister, in the life of the local church, or we make ourselves susceptible to false teaching. Ephesians 4, verse 13, Paul addresses this. He says he wants the church to grow spiritually. He says he wants the church to mature, uh, in their, to grow to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he says that we may no longer be children. You say, what is the mark of children? Is they believe everything, Right? I mean, I bet I could go into children's ministry this morning and just proclaim to them in all sincerity, the Easter Bunny's here, the Easter Bunny's here. And I bet I could get some children to walk to the door. It's like, where is he? Because you can get children to believe almost anything. One of the first things we tell children when they go out into the world is don't believe everything a stranger tells you. If a stranger tries to pick you up from school, if you've never seen him before, don't trust everyone. The mark of a child is they believe everything. And Paul says, I want you no longer to be children, just believing anything and everything that is taught to you. But I want you to be discerning like a mature adult as a Christian. He goes on to say, I don't want you to be tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. It's the mark of a child. I want you to grow into maturity, to mature manhood. Paul says is, I want you to exercise discernment. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Look, you need to discern. You need to have a mature mindset. You need to be rooted in the word of God because there are teachings that are out there and they're never going to be obvious. They're always going to come in subtle, deceptive forms. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says, Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. I'm always reminded by the Berean, their example. The Bereans were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica. And they tested the teaching of the Apostle Paul with the Word of God. They went back to the Scriptures and searched it daily to see if these things were so. And if they did that with the Apostle Paul, then should we not do that with anything that we hear? 
This is a teaching that is on my heart. I believe that we may be lulled into a spirit of complacency because, after all, we have the name Bible in the middle of our church's name. And so we'll never be susceptible to false doctrine or false teaching. It's almost this idea that Satan is going to look at the sign that's out by our church. He's going to see the name Bible and he's going to get scared and run away. Because, oh, they'll never take it. There may be a spirit in our hearts. It'll never happen here. Or it'll never happen to me. This is a warning for those other churches, but not to a church like us. Brothers and sisters, I would remind you that the church at Philippi was a good church. The church at Philippi was a godly church. The church at Philippi did, was not infiltrated with false teaching as of yet. They weren't like the Galatians would bought into heresy. And yet Paul says, I not only have warned you against false teaching, I'm warning you again. You need to hear these things again and again because this is safe for you. This is protection for you as a church. And so I'm reminding you again to beware of the dogs, the false workers, the false circumcision. Let me just ask you this morning, just as a believer in Christ, If someone were to show up in our church teaching a false view of justification, could you as a Christian, biblically and from the word of God, identify that error and refute it? Could you go to biblical texts and explain the true doctrine of justification by faith alone from the Bible in opposition to the false view of justification, which is out there everywhere in the world? If someone were to show up teaching an aberrant view of Christ, an aberrant view of his humanity, an aberrant view of his deity, an aberrant view of how these two natures are joined together in one person, an aberrant view of the incarnation, could you as a Christian guard yourself against that false teaching? Could you go to the text of Scripture and defend what you believe about the true nature of Jesus Christ? And from the text of Scripture, defend the true gospel of Christ. If someone were to show up teaching a different gospel, and brothers and sisters, the different gospel is never overt. It is always just a subtle twist on the true gospel. Could you biblically and textually explain the true gospel in opposition to the false gospel? Could you articulate what you believe from the Holy Scripture? You say, Dan, isn't that your job as a pastor? It is my job. It is the job of spiritual leaders to defend the church against false doctrine. Titus chapter 1 verse 9 says, The elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The reason why Paul had Titus install elders in the church was there was so much false teaching Everywhere, And he says you need to find elders who are able to hold to the Holy Scripture and who are able to teach sound doctrine, who are able to discern false doctrine from true doctrine and rebuke any who teach false doctrine. But this role isn't restricted to church leaders. It's the job of the pastor to equip the saints 
so that the saints of the church grow up to maturity so that the saints are no longer as children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, but they are constantly nourished on the truth, on the words of sound doctrine which are found in Scripture. Paul says in verse 1, I want you to rejoice in the Lord. I want you to experience Christ. I want your lives to be filled with joy. I want you to be filled with all the blessings that the gospel has to offer. And look, if you're going to do that, you have to guard the purity of doctrine in the church. You have to guard the true gospel as opposed to the false gospel. And if you look at the history of the church, there are hundreds, thousands of ways where Satan will corrupt the doctrine that's found in scripture. And so this warning is for us as it was for the Philippians. The onslaught of false teaching has not gotten any better in our day than it was in Paul's day. And Paul is writing this for the safety of the church and for the joy of the Christians there. And I'm preaching this message for the safety of you believers and for the joy of your Christian walks. I'm preaching this message because, like Paul, I want you to experience all the full blessings that the gospel has for you. But if you're going to do that, the greatest threat to your joy and your blessing is false teaching. Now, what exactly was the error Paul is addressing in this text? I believe because of what he says in verse 2, where he addresses the false circumcision or the mutilation that he's addressing the same error that he is, was addressing in the book of Galatians. The same error that has infiltrated the Galatian church. There was a group known as the Judaizers who were promoting a false view of justification and a false means of salvation. And let me just set the context for you. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles, right? Up until this point in redemptive history, the focus of redemptive history was the nation of Israel, was the Jews. The Old Testament scriptures was a Jewish scripture. It had Jewish prophecies. It had uh, promises that led to a Jewish Messiah, who was Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 28, in the Great Commission, the floodgates are made wide open. Paul, uh, Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone, make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. And so the gospel now goes into the Gentile world, and Paul is an apostle to the Gentiles. If you remember back in the book of Acts, this plan unfolds. The gospel goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It starts off with Peter, who is the apostle to the Jews. He preaches the gospel to the Jewish people. Peter then hands the baton, as it were, to Paul, and Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And in the three missionary journeys of Paul, Paul goes out and he preaches the gospel to the Gentile world. So here we have in the first, the first time in redemptive history, we have Gentiles in mass coming to faith in a Jewish Messiah. We have all of these Gentiles, thousands of them, believing in Christ, believing in the gospel, believing in the message of Jesus and him crucified. All of these uncircumcised Gentiles who were once considered to be outside of the people of God are now coming into the people of God. And they are being joined together with Jew in this unique organism known as the church. And the unique mark of the church is that it is Jew and Gentile in one body joined together with no distinction. And this is the first generation in which all of these Gentiles are coming into the plan of God. Now, there are some in the church who are watching this, 
and they are former Jews, and they are actually former Pharisees. And they proclaim to believe in Christ, they, they profess to believe in Christ, and they're watching all of these uncircumcised Gentiles come into the church, and these uh, Jewish, um, whether these Jewish people who profess to believe in Christ, they want to cling to their Jewish identity and their national heritage. And so what these Judaizers begin to teach is that in order for these Gentile believers to truly believe in Christ, in, in order for them to truly experience the fullness of salvation in Christ, they, they need to submit under the Mosaic law. They need to submit under the ceremonial law given by Moses. They must become, in essence, proselyte Jews. They must become Gentiles who are initiated into the Jewish community. And one of the main requirements that they must submit to is the provision of circumcision. Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now Paul makes clear, and Pastor James has made this very clear in his teaching, that these men, these Judaizers, are attacking the heart of the gospel. This is no secondary issue. They are denying the doctrine of justification by faith alone. They are teaching justification by faith plus circumcision. It is faith plus something. It is faith plus the Mosaic law. It is faith plus Judaism. It is faith plus ceremony. They are attacking the heart of the gospel. And in Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. As we learn in the book of Galatians, this is no small error. This is a full frontal attack on the heart of the gospel. This is a denial of the doctrine of justification. This is adding to or supplementing the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a nullification of grace because it is a twisting of the teaching of grace. And in Galatians chapter 5, verse 12, Paul states his view of these Judaizers in strongest terms, saying, I wish that those who would unsettle you would just emasculate themselves. That's a word referring to castration. Paul says, if these Judaizers are teaching that you are saved through faith plus circumcision, I wish that they would just go all the way and emasculate themselves. This is a serious heresy in the life of the early church. It is a denial of the gospel. It is a denial of the central tenets of the Christian faith. It is a twisting of the doctrine of justification that a Gentile must become as a Jew in order to fully believe in Christ. But the main thing I want you to get, brothers and sisters, is this. From our vantage point... 2,000 years later, from our vantage point, we know that the Judaizers were teaching a serious heresy. With 2,000 years of church history to guide us, with the epistle to the Galatians to guide us, we understand that these teachers were attacking the heart of the gospel, which is justification by grace alone through faith alone. We understand the seriousness of this error. It has been delineated for us, and it is clear to us. We understand that they are attacking the cross of Christ. They are distorting the gospel of grace. 
we understand that this is a clear and serious heresy. But what I want you to know is that if you lived in the generation in which Paul did, it wouldn't have been so clear. It would have been very subtle and very deceptive. In fact, the error of the Judaizers at the time Paul lived was so subtle, it was so deceptive that even the apostle Peter and Barnabas were influenced by this teaching. In Galatians chapter 2, Cephas came to Antioch. Paul says, I opposed him to his face. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Look, imagine yourself living in the generation in which Paul did. For centuries, all that was, all that you had was the Old Testament scriptures. All that you had had up to this point in redemptive histories was the nation of Israel, was the Jews. Jesus Christ is a Jewish Messiah. He comes fulfilling Jewish prophecies. It is all recorded in the Jewish scriptures. The church is an infant organization. We've never seen anything like this before. This is all Gentiles coming into the church. Thousands of Gentiles placing their faith in a Jewish Savior. And along come some well-educated Jews highly articulate, highly knowledgeable, thoroughly steeped in the Old Testament scriptures and in the writing of the rabbinic teachings, men who profess to know Jesus Christ, who also profess to have a deep love for the Old Testament scriptures, and they're saying, oh, this is all wonderful. All these Gentiles coming into the church is all wonderful. It's all beautiful. We welcome you all. It's all a beautiful thing of God. But all you need to do to become a full-fledged member of the church is to submit yourself under the circumcision of Judaism. They would have opened their Bibles. They would have opened the Old Testament scriptures. They would have said, look, circumcision is taught in the Bible. Don't you see it? It's repeated. It's so clear. It's, it's, it's so essential. They would have appealed, possibly, to the fact that Jesus Christ was a Jew, that Jesus Christ was circumcised. I mean, don't you want to be like Jesus? WWJD, what would Jesus do? Jesus was circumcised. You say you believe in Jesus, don't you want to be like him? Submit to the circumcision that he submitted to. They would have possibly appealed to the heritage of Jesus. You see all of these generations that came before Jesus. You see Jesus' genealogy, how it all comes from Abraham. Doesn't that sound wonderful? True Christian is a little Christ. He wants to be like Jesus. And although in our day we understand that this is a full frontal attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ, in Paul's day, this would have been tremendously deceptive. It's no excuse. 
Paul says in Galatians, I'm amazed that you are deserting Christ in order to believe in this different gospel. But what I'm saying to you this morning is that when wolves come into the church to rip the church apart, they do not look like wolves. They look like sheep. They come carrying the Bible. They come opening the Bible. They come appealing to you through the Bible. Their arguments seem sincere. They profess to know Christ. And if you, dear brothers and sister, are still like a child, believing anything and everything that you hear from anyone, your joy and your blessing in the gospel will be thoroughly compromised. I believe that many times false teachers can articulate their false gospel in a much more skillful and dedicated way than we can articulate the true gospel. I remember having a phone dialogue with a Catholic leader, and we're dialoguing about the doctrine of justification. I said, the Bible teaches justification by faith alone. He said, the Bible teaches justification by faith plus works. But what I was taken aback, although his teaching was an error, although his teaching was not biblical, what I was taken aback was how thoroughly he understood his false doctrine, how skillfully he was communicating it, how persuasively he was arguing for it. It's not just a matter of you can just wave your Bible in front of these people and the error goes away. We must be thoroughly understanding of the doctrine in which we hold in order to guard the purity of the doctrine of Christ, the purity of the gospel. And I ask you again, dear brothers and sisters, do you know why you believe what you believe? If you say you believe the gospel and love the gospel and cherish the gospel, can you show me through the text of scripture why you hold the convictions that you do? Because if you cannot... That, those convictions will not last under the onslaught of the error in this world which come distorting the gospel of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul says, these men are dogs, not the nice little chihuahuas you see at PetSmart, but, but the, the scavenger, the mongrels, wild, who ran around the city, who attacked savagely other dogs and people that they saw. The filthy animals carrying disease and eating the trash of the land. He says these men are dogs. Uh, the, the Jews considered the Gentiles to be dogs. And he just turns us around and says, no, it is these Jewish false teachers who are the true dogs. And then he says these are the evildoers. These are the workers of iniquity. They were teaching what seemed to be good works. They were teaching what seemed to be morality and Jewish circumcision and Nice religious ceremony, and Jesus said they are workers of, Paul says they are workers of iniquity because they are attacking the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says they are evildoers. They are mutilators of the flesh. Paul deliberately refuses to use the word circumcision here. Instead, he uses a different word, katatomi. These are those who cut themselves. They mutilate themselves. He places their pagan circumcision on, on par with a pagan mutilation and pagan idolatry. 
What Paul is saying here is that there is a vast, unbridgeable chasm between what these false teachers teach and what the true church of God holds to in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not reconcilable. These men are false teachers. These men are false prophets. These men are enemies of the cross of Christ. They are those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. They seek to destroy the church of God. But oh, brothers and sisters, how harmless they appear to be. How persuasive were their lips. How biblical were their arguments on the surface. How the appeal was not to engage in wild and licentious living, but the appeal was just, let's be more biblical in our approach. They came quoting the Old Testament as former Pharisees, they would have been so well acquainted with the Old Testament, they would have been so thoroughly learned in the rabbinic law as possible that men like Peter were just intimidated by that. Peter was a fisherman. His background was blue-collar work. He was unlearned. The other apostles were common men as well, and I believe that God uniquely equipped Paul to address the error in, this, in the Judaizers because Paul was a former Pharisee who could match their intellectual firepower and match their understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and the rabbinic traditions. He could uniquely discern the deception in their teaching and see what they were really all about. And he's saying here, these are wolves in sheep clothing. The dogs of this world don't look like dogs, they look like sheep. The evildoers of this world don't look like evildoers, they, they are dressed in the garb of religious devotion. The false circumcision, the pagan mutilators, they don't look like false circumcision. They look like religious teachers, religious leaders, the PhDs, the educated of this world. And how are we as a church to guard against false teaching? Brothers and sisters, we must know and articulate the true gospel of Jesus Christ from the true scriptures of God. We must, as Paul told Timothy, be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine we have been following. We must learn to be diligent to divide God's word accurately, faithfully, handling accurately the word of truth. We must install leaders in the church who are able to teach sound doctrine, who are able to refute those who contradict. We must give attention to the public reading of scripture, to teaching, to exhortation. We must learn to discern false spirits from true spirits. We must learn to hold fast to what is good and to, to abstain from all that is evil. We must relentlessly pursue a right understanding of the word of God because it's only then that we'll have, be able to guard the purity of the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Missed the onslaught of so many who would corrupt it. I don't want you to get the idea that guarding against false teaching is merely intellectual. I do want you to understand that you need to know your Bibles, that you need to defend your convictions from the text of what God has given in his inspired word. But I don't want you to feel that that is all that it is, because that is not all that it is. Guarding against false teaching in the church is not merely intellectual, it is also relational. 
Look at verse 3. Paul says, For we are the true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He describes the walk of the true Christian in contrast to the walk of the false teachers. And he gives to us three characteristics of the true Christian's walk. And I would just give these to you as application points, as response to this teaching. These are points to put into practice in your daily walk to guard yourself against the false teaching of this world. Number one, a true Christian has a humble heart. A humble heart. Paul says we are the true circumcision. What does he mean by that? He says we have received the true circumcision from God. You know, the true circumcision from God was not the circumcision of flesh. It was the circumcision of the heart. The Bible makes this clear. Deuteronomy 10 verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. This is the true circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. It is a humble heart. It is a broken heart. It is a contrite heart. It is a contrite heart that seeks to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And outward circumcision was merely a sign, a symbol of the inward circumcision that God desired to take place in our hearts. Romans 2 verse 28 says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. A circumcised heart is a humble heart. A circumcised heart is a broken heart. A circumcised heart is a heart that comes to God like the, the, the publican came to God and beat on his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is the walk of a true Christian. As we walk with circumcised hearts, with humble hearts before our God and before the gospel of Christ, clinging only to what Christ has done on our behalf. If you walk in this way, you'll guard yourself against false teaching. Number two characteristic is a spirit-filled walk. A spirit-filled walk. Paul says, verse 3, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. He uses there an interesting Greek word, latruo. It's translated in other contexts as to serve. You say, Dan, which is it? Does it describe worship or service? And the idea is that it describes both. It describes a lifestyle of worship, not just an act of worship. It describes a lifestyle of sacrificial service that is offered up as an act of worship to God. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship is how we live. Worship is how we walk. Worship is walking by the Holy Spirit of God and serving Christ in our everyday lives. As we walk by the Spirit and as we're filled by His influence, the Spirit sanctifies our lives and we worship God, offering up to Him a life that is pleasing so we walk with a humble heart. We walk according to the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, we walk boasting only in Jesus Christ. Verse 3, we are the true circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. That word glory, it means to exult in or to rejoice in. It carries the idea of putting full confidence, full trust, full reliance 
in Jesus Christ and him alone. Galatians 6.14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart and the walk of a true Christian. It is a Christ-centered mind. It is a Christ-centered perspective. It is that I'm, I'm walking forward in life, boasting in, trusting in, relying in, only in the work of Jesus Christ at the cross. If you walk in this way, you will guard yourself against false teaching because this is the walk of a true Christian. We walk with humble hearts, having circumcised hearts before the Lord. We walk according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we walk focused on, consumed by, relying upon the work of Jesus Christ at the cross and his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. False teaching cannot produce these three fruits. False teaching can produce moralism. It can produce behavior modification. If you look at those who have followed false teaching, you see that it can produce hard work. It can produce productive lives in an earthly sense, but it cannot produce a humble heart, a circumcised heart. It cannot produce a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, and it cannot produce a singular boasting in the cross of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, what I'll say to you this morning is that this warning is God's warning to us. This is God's expression of love to us as a church. Because the heart of God is he wants us to experience the full joy that is found in the Lord, that is found in Christ. And so let us be on guard against false teaching. Let us devote ourselves wholeheartedly to the Holy Scriptures Let's discern what is true from what is false and let us walk as true Christians. Walking by the Spirit, humbly before our God, boasting only in the cross of Jesus so that we may experience the full joy of Christ. Would you stand with me as we close our time of worship and let's respond to the Word of God by praying to him and thanking him for his grace. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord. And we thank you so much that it is your word which reveals to us the true gospel of Christ. We thank you that it is the gospel, the good news that has been proclaimed to us. It is Christ and him crucified. It is justification by grace alone through faith alone. It is the good news that Christ has taken all of our sins that we may receive all of his righteousness. And we do nothing to add to our justification. We simply receive it by faith alone. Lord, this is the good news that is found in your word. And this is the good news we hold fast to and rejoice in and exult in this day. And oh, Father, we pray for our church. Lord, we pray for the believers here at Cornerstone that you would grant us, O Father, to beware of any who would come teaching a different doctrine or teaching a different gospel. Lord, make us so skilled and so devoted to your holy word that we are able to defend the gospel against attacks from every side and that we may be able to pass it on with all purity to the next generation of believers in our church and in this world. 
Oh, Father, would you do this in our hearts and in our lives by your grace. Father, would you do this for our joy and for our blessing that we may experience all that you have to offer. And Father, would you help us to respond in humility through the power of the Holy Spirit, boasting only in the cross of Christ and what he has done. We give you thanks for this time. We pray that you would be with us as we take this break and come back for our our elders sharing. And give us, Lord, receptive hearts to hear all that you have for us this day. We pray all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen.